Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine, the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. In this week's Black History Week, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about the centuries-old military rivalry between China and Japan. Professor Jeremy Black, I'm not proposing we go through every battle between Chinese and Japanese forces since their first recorded clash, I think in 663 AD, but there is a long historic enmity between uh, China and Japan, which seems to exist even though systems of government and ideologies have come and gone uh, between them. What, what underpins this, uh, this enmity? Well, that's a really interesting question. Let's start off with the uh, point that one can make, that there have been, um, obviously, periods of conflict, and we're thinking about this question, and I'm glad you've raised it because it's an important question, because it relates to the deep history of the modern world. And I'm going to briefly talk about um, clashes in the... um, Uh, medieval period in the early modern period and then uh, at greater length from the late 19th century to the present day. Um, But we ought to be clear of this. A lot of historians write um, what is often very glib comments about geopolitics and inevitable rivalries and then they construct notions of strategic culture accordingly which might be good fun for them it's certainly very lazy but the fact of the matter is that if you look at this particular case of China and Japan there have also been long periods when the two states have not fought each other say the 18th century for example uh, or indeed the 17th century so I think one's got to be quite cautious here and if you're looking if we look at the last millennium the um, first uh, major uh, uh, Chinese attack in the last millennium uh, was in 1274 with a uh, a follow-up in 1281. Now these were two invasion attempts they were very important in the ideology of uh, Japan, the notion of uh, being saved by a sacred wind, etc., etc. The reality was more complex, of course. But the point to bear in mind is those invasions were launched by Kublai Khan, the newly uh, powerful Mongol ruler of China. And to describe these as Chinese invasions of Japan is rather, shall we say, problematic. Um, It's rather like if you were taking William I having conquered England in 1066 and you were then to be describing his war uh, later in his reign against the French as England fights France. Um, So I think one's got to be quite sophisticated here and I think one of the great problems is modern geopolitical analysis is A, generally historically weak, and B, very unsophisticated. Now, again, if you're looking at the next major uh, conflict, which is the conflict in the uh, 1590s, this begins again, and this is interesting, as a result of a newly um, established ruler, in this case, the ruler of um, uh, Japan, Hideyoshi, who has conquered it by 
uh, defeating his opponents. Uh, he hasn't um, inherited his position at all. Um, he invades um, uh, Korea and the, um, uh, the Chinese come in on the, on the side of the Koreans. Um, so again, I think one has to be careful here. Um, uh, it wasn't inevitable that there would be a war between Japan and China then. It wasn't inevitable that Hideyoshi would win. It wasn't inevitable that the Ming emperor would come in to that war. Um, and, you know, one's got to be very careful about assessing some inherent inevitability. Um, and it's not, I think, until we get to more recent times that we can look at um, patterns that more correspond to modern statecraft, although allowing for that, one has to say that dynasticism, which we, you know, and monarchical rule, which traditionally we've sloughed off onto the past, and we apparently are so much more progressive in the present, I would hazard a suggestion that people in the future are going to look at North Korea as a dynastic state, and they are going to look at China under President Xi very much as an authoritarian dictatorship and, as it were, a non-hereditary monarchy. So one has to be cautious about assuming that, as it were, the modern constitutional context is different. But having said that, um, Japanese expansionism becomes, as you know, um, more... Uh, more of a factor in the late 19th century. It's linked to the Meiji Restoration in Japan, a newly assertive ruler and ruling corps, uh, cadre, I should say, um, which valorizes itself through war and develops its economy. Uh, one has to again be careful because the animosity of Japan is not simply directed towards China, although, as you may know, there is a um, Sino-Japanese war in the 1890s and in the 1870s, Japan um, has already attacked uh, uh, Taiwan, which was then part of China. Um, but it's worth saying that if you're looking at Japanese uh, strategic anxieties and expansionism, it's as much directed against Russia. Russia is the power um, that founds Vladivostok in 1860, that um, competes uh, with Japan in Sakhalin and in the Kuriles, in other words, to the north of Japan, that leads to Japanese anxieties about Hokkaido. Um, so there's that dimension of it. And then on top of that, you have the dimension in the Pacific of Japanese concern about the United States, which after all had deployed warships into its waters, Commodore Perry in the 1850s, the so-called opening up of Japan, and then the Americans become newly assertive in the Western Pacific, in part by taking over um, part of the Spanish Empire there, more specifically the Philippines. Um, so China isn't the only narrative in the about Japanese concerns. And I would say that actually remains the case during the 20th century. People today are talking in terms of this immutable Sino-Japanese rivalry. But there were Japanese... 
uh, military figures, Japanese ministers who were as concerned or more concerned in the 20th century about the Soviet Union or the United States as they were about China. The militarism of the 1930s Japanese government, uh, it, it, to what extent did that feed back to earlier traditions of the samurai and previous uh, emphasis on, on military superiority and the centrality of, uh, of, of martial arts in Japanese culture? Or really, was it no different to you know, many European countries who also had you know, codes of chivalry and, and a focus on the uh, on the importance of arms. Well, I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, there obviously are cultural factors, but there are also the more specific ones to do with um, the crisis of Japanese democracy in the 1930s, a crisis linked to a number of factors, not just the economic strains of the period, so let's not just go for materialist factors, but also linked to cultural factors. But the British uh, diplomat Sir Victor Wellesley put it in 1932. I'm, I found this document some time ago in the National Archives. He referred to Japan breathing what he called an atmosphere of gum grease. Uh, <laughs> marvellous. I mean, diplomats at that period could write the most marvellous stuff. Um, I think... You know, you get a um, a bellicosity which is very much focused on uh, on particular military circles, uh, not least younger military circles, um, and um, as it were, voices of reason and caution among both civilians and the military are stilled. I mean, as you may know, in 1936. Um, senior officers are killed in an attempted coup by younger officers. Um, I mean, a lot of the rivalry is within the military. And therefore, I think, and there are, as I've discussed in my book on military technology, there are two strands in the Japanese army in the 1920s, one of which puts an emphasis on, as it were, technological development, and the other one puts its emphasis, as it were, on willpower. Um, and I think one's got to be very cautious about assuming that all of the Japanese military are united around a particular culture, or for that matter, a particular target. Um, so, as you may know, the Manchuria episode begins in 1931, when Japanese forces in what's known as the Kwantung Army, that's the Japanese forces located in southern Manchuria, um, uh, the, you know, where it was established Japanese sphere of influence, that particular branch of the army uh, takes part in a series of staged episodes um, which, you know, other elements of the army aren't particularly delighted about. Ditto with the attack by Japan on the Chinese section of Shanghai in 1932. That's very much a navalist attack, uh, which, again, part of the Navy likes and part of the Navy doesn't like. Um, and one of the things about, um, about Japan, I think one can fairly say uh, in this period, is that there is no real guiding uh, focus of policy change. There is a degree of muddle and drift towards violence, but with different agendas of violence operated, operating. Now, you also, you ask about the sense of imperial mission. Um, that's, it's controversial, 
One argument is not so much that there is a religion, uh, not, not so much that there is a, um, a kind of warrior cult, but rather that there's a, a, a sort of radical Shinto. In other words, as you may know, uh, Japan has two major religious strands, uh, Shintoism, uh, still does to this day, incidentally, Shintoism and Zen Buddhism. And Shinto was, or the radical Shinto, had a kind of divine sort of sense of divine providential purpose of Japanese superiority. Um, so that is significant, but that comes from, if you like, a not necessarily specifically or solely a military agenda. And there's academic controversy um, about the attitudes and impact of Zen Buddhism. Some scholars emphasize what they see as its bellicosity, others do not agree. And as you may know, I don't know if you've been to Japan, you <laughs> Japanese people are capable, well, not just capable, many of them um, simultaneously will um, make, you know, go to Buddhist shrines and to Shinto shrines. So, I mean, there is a capacity to hold a, um, a polytheistic sense um, that really doesn't always meet a kind of it's either this or that approach. And uh, I just want to go back uh, to a moment to, to 1868 with, with the Meiji Restoration. This is always seen as a, as a kind of historical shorthand for the, the creation of modern Japan, a, a Japan focused on, on technological, technological advance, um, uh, which gave it a, a significant lead, not least a military lead over China at the same time. Is that fair? Do we um, do historians try and read too much into 1868? Well, I think it's right to say that it is significant in terms of politics and economics. Um, it's also interesting to ask what would have happened to Japan, whether it would have developed in a way similar to China with external intervention or greater external intervention had there not been um, the, uh, the Meiji restoration. I mean, obviously you've got the classic problem of counterfactualism. Uh, we know there was the Meiji revolution. We know what happened from it. We can therefore establish a causality. But I think it's fair to say that it may well have been the case that if there had not been that restoration, that one might have got elements that were similar in outcome from the pre-existing state of affairs. So I think one's got to be quite cautious here. And of course, the Meiji Restoration was accompanied by civil violence uh, in Japan, as you know, sorry, in China, as you know, there was to be civil violence, there was civil violence at the time of the um, Taiping Rebellion, later at the Boxer Rebellion, later at the Warlord era, the outcomes of these are far from inevitable. So if you read from that, you could argue that the outcome in the case of Japan is far from inevitable. But nevertheless, you end up with a state that is militarily more powerful and also more interested in expansionism. I think that's a key point. Uh, than its predecessors had been. Mm -hmm. The um, Japanese uh, allied with the, the British and the French and other international groups to suppress the Boxer Rebellion in China in 1900. Um, how significant was that, Japanese troops on, on Chinese soil? And was it, it, was it in, in any way, did it foreshadow the, the subsequent alliance with Britain in the First World War? 
Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, obviously not completely, because as you all know, the legations that were attacked included those of powers that were subsequently to be in the central powers fighting the Western allies. So I wouldn't go, <laughs> I wouldn't go to that extent. Um, uh, what I would say is that the um, there was a um, interesting ambiguity in British policy that Japan, as it were, plugged into in the 1900s, that interestingly enough, prefigures some of the confusions of the Second World War period. And the ambiguity is as follows. Britain, for most of the 19th century, not all of it, but for most of the 19th century, and particularly the later 19th century, had been hostile to Russian expansionism. Russia, once it becomes a Pacific power, capital P, not small p, um, in 1860, becomes more obviously a challenge to British interests in the Far East. There's anxiety, as we've already discussed, in Australasia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's also obviously of great concern for Japan, as we've already mentioned. So in 1902, you have a cooperation of two powers, both of whom are anti-Russian, Britain and um, Japan. Now, there are other dimensions to it. I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, these two powers are linked, that, that a linkage could be used against others, against Germany, which was showing a degree of assertiveness in the Western Pacific, for example, against maybe the United States. But, the immediate two power, th power threat is from Russia. And then in, um, the British, first of all, cooperate in the Entente Cordiale with France, Russia's major ally. And then they establish an Entente separately with Russia. And in a way, the logic of the Anglo-Japanese alliance becomes less clear cut. Now, obviously, there are interesting examples, if you're thinking about it, in terms of the 1930s and early 1940s, in, in terms of how Japan finds that its alliance partners do not, as it were, necessarily act as they had anticipated. Uh, Germany uh, and the Soviet Union allying in 1939, for example, being a classic example, uh, because one of the major reasons for the Japanese alliance with Germany is because they thought that Hitler was a resolute anti-Soviet. Um, um, and, you know, the... Um, the uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is a great problem for them. But winding back to 1902, 1902 serves Japanese goals. They're linked to the world's leading uh, trading power. They're linked to the world's leading navy. Uh, they're linked to a power that has been taking an important role um, in China and is one whom they would hope to have on their side if their uh, influence is going to increase in China and um, Korea. And in the event of war with Russia, uh, they are winning at the very least, they would hope, neutrality, and that this is going to be very valuable to them. So from the Japanese point of view, the alliance is extremely important. From the British point of view, the alliance is valuable if you anticipate conflict with Russia. 
And remember, as recently as the Fashoda crisis of 1898, when Britain and France nearly go to war over the Sudan, there had been anxieties about naval conflict in the Mediterranean with the British finding themselves fighting both the French and the Russians. So there is that anxiety. There is the argument in the longer span that, of course, what alliance with Japan does do is mean that the British can concentrate the naval forces against Germany. But the extent to which that was obvious as a challenge in 1902, that is before the uh, Anglo-German naval race had been launched, is in my view problematic. And yet again, I think we've got some lazy analysis often offered here. Um, and I actually think that the um, that that treaty should be seen in part as a British desire to stabilize a uh, an alignment against Russia, rather than a um, as it were something that is dominated by uh, competition with Germany. Although that it, that element subsequently becomes, as you've correctly indicated, more consequential. Mm, well, let's just return um, to the. The, the nature of, of direct Sino-Chinese conflict for a moment. There, there are two, there's the first and second Sino-Japanese war. The 1894-95, there's a brief war, which is a Japanese victory, which leads really to Korea uh, gaining independence from China. And then in 1931, there is the Japanese invasion of, of Manchuria. Should we see Korea and Manchuria as really the two fundamental flashpoint territories for, for the Sino-Japanese conflict, or if it wasn't there, it would be something, something else. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, they'd already, there was also, as you know, tension or conflict indeed over Taiwan. Um, and Manchuria, in many respects, um, is a matter of Russo-Japanese tension and indeed conflict as much as Chinese-Japanese conflict. Um, it's uh, absolutely crucial in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, a conflict in which the Japanese victory in that leads Japan to be able to annex uh, Korea and to strengthen its position in Manchuria. And as you may know, um, the Soviets and Japan fight a brief war, but a significant war in 1929. Um, in Manchuria, and of course they clash on the on the frontier between Manchuria and both Mongolia, which is a Soviet client state, and the Soviet Union in 1938-39. So I think, you know, if you un unpick it, there is a Soviet dimension, just as there was a Soviet dimension in the Korean War of 1950-53. Um, the planes, the aircraft being used uh, by the communists are Soviet, and it's Stalin who more or less leans on Mao to intervene in the um, Korean War. Um, so I think there is a Soviet dimension, but if you're looking at the Chinese dimension, um, Japan is, and again, here we're in danger of expressing Japan as if it's a unified force, which it isn't. There's a, a variety of um, tendencies and pressures there. Um, some Japanese circles, uh, argue that Korea is inherently part of a Japanese system, as in inherently is, therefore should be. That does not necessarily mean war with China or the conquest of China, no more than, for example, attitudes to Tibet do in that period. 
um, because it's by no means clear what are or will be Chinese buffer uh, attitudes to buffer positions and indeed buffer positions. Manchuria is complicated because it's a trilateral uh, uh, struggle, uh, China, Japan and Russia, the last two being more consequential in the early um, 20th century, i.e. the 1900s. Um, in part, I think what one can fairly say is the Japanese, I mean, we tend to address this agenda in terms of Japan becoming stronger and uh, therefore a um, challenge to China. It's also worth bearing in mind that from the Japanese perspective, the Chinese movements to strengthen themselves, either movements within the imperial structure of the late 19th century, the so-called self-strengthening movement, for example, are a challenge to, uh, or are perceived by Japan as a challenge. But then the fall of the empire, the creation of a Chinese republic, the development by the Chinese republic of nationalist language, and hostility to foreign economic and political interests. And then subsequently, after the warlord uh, era of the very end of the 19-teens, uh, uh, beginning in mid of the 1920s, the consolidation of control over much, though not all, of China uh, by the Kuomintang nationalist government under, from 1925, Chiang Kai-shek, um, is also troubling for a uh, very troubling for the Japanese. So on the one hand, you can see this as an agenda of rising Japanese aggression, Japanese expansionism, etc, etc, etc. On the other hand, it is more complicated than that. And I think one of the problems is that people don't always build adequately both those elements into the equation. And with the, the Japanese invasion of Chinese Manchuria in 1931, that war there, it, the Japanese victories, you would attribute to superior resources, superior technology, superior generalship, uh, better strategy and tactic. I mean, all of the above or some of the above? Are we talking about specifically Manchuria? Yes. Well, in the case of Manchuria, uh, the young warlord, as he was called, the person in charge, is not adequately supported by Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek... Um, is more interested or appears more interested uh, in suppressing or fighting the communists uh, elsewhere in China. Um, so, as it were, the young warlord is very much left on his own. Um, and I think it's not a surprise that um, Manchuria is uh, relatively rapidly, or at least the major cities of Manchuria, are relatively rapidly overrun. Um, but that's not the same um, as saying that um, that model could, we, could be adequately run out, A, in a larger area of China, and B, I think it's fair to say that, the, that much of Manchuria, uh, away from the railway lines and the cities, were areas in which uh, Japanese control was minimal. How extensive were Japanese war aims? I mean, how much of China did Japan in the 
late 1930s and during what became the Second World War. Uh, how far, uh, how much of China did Japanese ambition seek to occupy? Oh, that's a fascinating question. I mean, first of all, there was a clear wish to dominate Manchuria, which was seen as a basis for a military industrial complex in which Japan would receive coal and oil and as a base, sorry, coal and iron, not oil, coal and iron, and served as the basis for the enhancement of industrial capacity and also an area where the Japanese would be able to settle what was seen as surplus population. So that is an element. There wasn't the same set of um, attitudes towards the bulk of China in the sense that the the Japanese, there was an incrementalism in the spread of um, Japanese military presence elsewhere, an incrementalism from 1933. The war that broke out, the large-scale war that broke out in 1937 was um, unintended. Uh, the Japanese at the time, or many of their leaders, favoured not war with China, but preferring for war with the Soviet Union and communism. And indeed, it was ideally felt that as part of this preparation, China should be persuaded to be a junior partner of Japan. So from the Japanese point of view, I'm not saying that we should have to agree with them, but from their point of view, Chiang Kai-shek's uncooperativeness prompted Tokyo to try and give him a short, sharp lesson. But that wasn't the same as wishing to annex um, the, the whole of China. Um, and I think it's fair to say that what you end up with is a bit of a mess. Um, the, um, the large scale conflict that breaks out in um, 1937 um, is not one that the, the Japanese want. Um, they, their, their method of trying to deal with it is to try and defeat the army, the Kuomintang armies, and to create uh, client Japan governments, pro-Japanese governments in China. One, of course, in Manchuria, which they do create, and the others, which they also create in central China and in southern China. Um, but I think it's fair to say that neither of the latter two, nor I, I would argue the, four, the first, but neither of the latter two certainly carry an enormous amount of conviction. Though I think I'm right that about 850,000 Chinese troops fight for the Japanese, but they, you know, which is a formidable lumber. But there's no uh, real conviction. Within Japanese policymaking circles, there's real disagreements within the army by which come to a, a four, I would say, by 1941. I mean, they, disagreements have already been there earlier. Uh, there are disagreements about whether there should be compromise with the Chinese nationalists, which was a theme that had been sort of probed from 1938 onwards. But uh, General Tojo, who gains power in October 1941, is totally against um, that policy. And then um, there is a question of uh, how uh, the conflict in uh, China is going to fit in with what might happen in terms of Japanese policy elsewhere. 
and that again is unclear. So I wouldn't say there was a central and certain Japanese um, view on how they should fight China and to what ends. Certainly, the Japanese wished to dominate in the sense of have predominance, but that was not the same as having an interest in significant territorial gains beyond Manchuria. And I have a counterfactual question for you, and that is to what extent, um, particularly during the, the period of the Second World War, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's um, China was, was, uh, was disabled by having to also fight Mao's communists. If there had not been a, a communist insurrection, how much more successful would the Chinese forces have been in resisting the Japanese? Well, uh, that is a very good question. I certainly don't think that the communists at the time were as significant as they were subsequently to present themselves or to be presented by left-wing apologists in the West. I think the bulk of the resistance was by the Kuomintang. Um, the Kuomintang suffered because uh, they received the preponderance of Japanese attack. Um, had the communists, as it were, not been there, I don't think it would have been significantly different in China, in that the Japanese didn't have the ability to defeat the Chinese, and the Chinese didn't how the Kuomintang we're talking about here, and the Kuomintang didn't have the ability to do the same towards the Japanese. And, and the um, technological superiority of the Japanese in the early 1940s, how telling was that? I mean, they're attacking a, a massive um, people in, 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 in the Chinese, but the, the technological advances was, was significant or certainly by the second half of the war was actually Chinese arms and armour uh, pretty good by comparison. Well, the Chinese had good, first of all, we're talking about an enormous, you know, it's always a problem. And, you know, it's the same if people talk about the British army or the German army or the American army. Um, there are very different uh, effectiveness and capabilities dependent upon uh, contrast within those forces and the particular tasks facing them. As far as the Chinese are concerned, this is even more the case. Um, I, what I would say is at the outset of the war, the forces of the Central Army, uh, the army around the, the Yangtze River, uh, much of which was German trained, incidentally, was very good and put up a formidable fight against the Japanese and in, you know, a tough fight. It was tough for the Japanese to conquer Shanghai in 37. And of course, as you may know, um, the Japanese advance was um, in 38, late 38, was brought to a halt partly by flooding, but partly also by strong Chinese resistance. So the Chinese were significant as in terms of fighting force. Um, I think what one could say is that compared to, shall we say, the 1944 Anglo-American force that invaded Normandy, you have a, a lesser degree of technological proficiency and enhancement. But having said that, I think it is nevertheless the case 
that in terms of fitness for purpose, both China and Japan are able to campaign campaigns like the 1942, 44 and 45 campaigns, um, uh, see are uh, the Japanese in particular making significant advances in um, in uh, uh, in China, and that's despite the fact that their technological um, sort of quotient is lower. I mean, they are less mechanized than a Western army in that period. But mechanization is not the only factor. I mean, remember, if you have mechanization, you've got to provide fuel. When the atomic bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, bringing forward the, the Japanese surrender, how, how much of, of Chinese territory was still in Japanese hands? Oh, very formidable amount, including um, Manchuria, Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, Wuhan, Guangzhou, Hainan, a lot of it. Right, right. Um, and I want to draw to a close by talking about relations after the Second World War, which, which has been, been tense, but uh, Japan obviously had its, uh, um, you know, what became a defense force, it, its powers clipped as a consequence of uh, defeat in the Second World War. How over the long view, <coughs> excuse me, how over the long view from the period from 1945 to now, has it taken Japan to really rebuild itself as a significant uh, military force in the area within its constitutional constraints? Well, that's a very interesting question. I'd, what I would say is that for a long time, the major goal of the Japanese was a self-defense force. And if you look at um, Japanese planning, um, sorry, yes, if you look at Japanese planning and Japanese deployment, Japanese force structure and Japanese doctrine, a lot of it was during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. In particular, there was the supposition that the Soviets would mount a uh, amphibious attack on the northernmost island, Hokkaido, from the Kurils and Sakhalin. So the Japanese put a lot of emphasis into the army, into artillery, into counter invasion forces, and as far as the Navy was concerned, into um, uh, home defense against Japanese force against Soviet forces coming out of uh, Vladivostok. They have now had to, or they feel they've now had to change their position vis-a-vis -vis the um, greater degree of anxiety about China. Um, they've switched from a concern about northeast Japan to a concern about southwest Japan. They've switched their emphasis from army to navy. The navy, by necessity, obviously has a greater range than the army. So this appears to be a... Um, a very significant change. It is a change. And let us be clear about this. I mean, I, I remember going to give a lecture at um, uh, the Japanese Defence Force Academy, and I remember going past some um, 
Japanese warships, which were in theory, I think, self-defense frigates. And these were very big ships. I mean, let's be under no illusion. And if you look at my stuff on the future of war and on naval warfare, you will notice I had on air power, you'll notice I have some discussion about the Japanese, as it were, move towards uh, vessels that will take aircraft. So um, I think it's fair to say that Japan is um, more powerful, but um, the, the amount of money it spends on defense is far lower than the amount of money spent by China. And Japan has a sense of vulnerability, which requires, therefore, close relationship with the United States to help deter um, China. Um, taking over from the role to help deter the Soviet Union, which was earlier. And now there's the additional maverick of North Korea. Mm. So just on a, on a final thought, um, Japan's strategic um, interests with regard to China, obviously, are the defense of uh, Japanese uh, territory. Um, how much further than that does it go? Uh, and how much more closely would you foresee Japan being um, drawn into the AUKUS pact that's been announced? Well, I think a lot depends. I mean, the, the pace of change in Japan in these matters tend to be relatively slow. On the other hand, there is um, a anxiety about um, the volatility pro provided by both Chinese pressure in the East China Sea, which is totally different to a focus of Soviet concern. Soviet concern was not focused primarily on Japan. And secondly, of course, North Korea. Um, I think what I would say is that the Japanese would prefer to cooperate through and to the end or ends of deterrence. I think that would represent as far as they would be comfortable going. Whether that's enough or not, we don't know. Well, Professor Jeremy Black, for taking us through the long view of Sino-Japanese military uh, relations, or lack of them, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe today? Right now we're offering five issues for just £10. Go to thecritic.co.uk and click subscribe. 